Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. We're starting The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. This won both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards. Now, if you read the author's introduction, did you notice that this was a really hard book to sell? How many publishers did he try to go to that rejected him? 13, 18. 18. There were 18 publishers that rejected him. So, just remember when you get into graduate school and start writing and then become a professor or whatever you become, if you find people rejecting you, all good work is different than previous work. And that differentness is going to make people reject it. Because people, what they look for when they're looking for things to publish and things so on, they look for um, variations of past success so as to capitalize on what they think is the in thing. But when you have something brand new, great. when you have something brand new, you are faced with editors and people who make decisions about whether to publish your book. <coughs> Excuse me. And they've never seen anything like that. So when you come up with something brand new, you're up against a particularly difficult challenge. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do things that are brand new. In fact, it means just the opposite. You must do things that are brand new. It's just part of the challenge. That's why you're different than other people. The people that are not doing things that are brand new are not making a mark in the world, although they make it lots of easy publications. People who do things that are really new are having much more fun. They're doing things that are really difficult to get published, but when they do get published, they, they, they really rock and roll the place. So this is very typical. Great things often go through difficult births. So expect that when you become a professor or when you become a, a, you know, someone who does something creative. If it's really new, you'll find lots of people disliking it. And you'll see later on that given some number of years, the very thing that everyone was so upset about will become the standard later on. That's how you know that you really changed something. Something that was so objectionable when you first did it becomes common sense afterwards. Anyway, the Forever War by Joe Haldeman, rejected by 18 different presses, then went on to become one of the greatest science fiction works ever written, won both the Hugo and the Nebula Awards. <laughs> it's a great book. Now this was, uh, what, what do we know about the author? He was in Vietnam. He was a Vietnam vet. He was a Vietnam veteran. An intelligent Vietnam veteran. Someone who came back and could write books, really interesting books. Fascinating in that respect. Well, this is an interesting book. It has a war going on, an interstellar war. And it's set in 19... When is it set, actually? It starts in 1997. 1997, that's right. So we don't need to worry too much about the years. It can be, an, as the author says, consider it an alternate reality. Or, you see, when he did write the book, 1997, seems sort of far away, and you could have an interstellar war 
so many years into the future. And then 1997 came about, and then the book is still a big book and an important book, so people are still reading it. So rather than change the dates, he just said, don't worry about it, it's considered an alternate reality. But the, the reality of it is really quite interesting. What I'd like to do to focus on this book is to address some of the initial ideas that relate to our current setting in our country, because we're a country at war in three places. We're at war in Afghanistan, we're at war in Iraq, and we're at a general war with terror, wherever it may be, globally. So we are really at war. And this particular book tells us a lot about what our situation is. So let's try to think if we can figure it out. Let's go to page 7. That's chapter 2. Well, before I do that, what do you think of it? Anyone have any thoughts about the book? Just I like it so far. You like it so far? It's really fast reading. Oh, it's fast reading. Yeah. It's a really racy. It's a, it's a racy book. It goes quick. It's weird. What is that? I think it's weird, so that's why it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is weird. My son looked at the cover. He's 13 years old. And he said, wow, that looks like a cool book, Dad. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is a pretty cool book. Why is it in the future everyone sleeps with everyone else? Yeah. Like in here and in Brave New World. And they just gave up on monogamy in the future. It does seem interesting. Um, yeah. How so many... Yeah, what's up with that? They're all lonely men. Don't care. They're all lonely men who write these books. And there's a lot of like, issues, <laughs> like the homosexuality part of it. Where they were saying that later in the year, like it's all that's all it is, and it's like a type of birth control too. Yeah, they were saying so that was an interesting twist on that too. Actually, the what you're raising actually is very interesting. There's a, there's a number of things to think about. Why would that be? What does that relate? How, why would that be important to a depiction of the future? What's that? Population growth at the moment, like within the by 2010, the world population is set to double almost. So at the rate we're going, we're going to run out of resources and space. So population growth. So you're equating sexuality with the reproductive act. I'm sorry. In this book, he explains it as a means for control of the population. So I'm equating it with that. Yeah. Okay. Or acceptance. But what else? Pardon me? Or we finally accept homosexuals because we realize, yeah. Okay, dealing with homosexuality. But what else? You wrote, you mentioned it in a number of books. Well, yeah. There's this, there's this sexuality issue that people are sleeping with other people with quite random abandon. I mean, we've gotten worse since... In like the 40s and 50s, so I mean, I guess science fiction writers think, wait, there's a leverage showing any signs of improvement. So, in the future, if we have all this phenomenal technology, why not also have, you know? Well, yeah. What does, what does, if you don't think of it just in terms of the sexual act, what does sleeping with sort of almost anybody represent? Well, it minimizes your connection to any one person. 
Minimizes your connection to any one person. You're in it for just a pleasure that artificial. Well, let's get you, okay. Religiously, it's like a sacred thing, like a sacred practice. That's like they consider it to be. Mm-hmm. It, be- it it becomes less of a sacred practice. Yeah. Okay. Well, compare it to the current time. What does it represent? If you were to look at the future where people were sleeping with everybody, and then the current where there were rules inhibiting that, what would what was that? Not very effective ones. Not very effective ones. Current rules. Well, they they got more effective the farther you go back, but uh, they're still more effective than the ones that are in the book. I don't know, because like it's a natural drive for people to like want to have sex. It's like in your genes. In the older days, when they had shitloads of cells who'd go out for several years, like a lot of them would go stir crazy, plainly from the fact that like they all this sexual energy was pent up with no way, no way of actual release. So like, I've, and you could possibly think of that these people are going to be going off for a long, long time. All right. So, like, even in the book, there's a point where they reach their station before they ship out to build their own base. Uh-huh. And there was, like, a group of all those men with just two women who were, like... So they were always, like, they perceived with somebody other because otherwise the men would just go crazy. Yeah. Well... And it also builds community. I mean, in a very weird, perverse sort of way. Um... Because mm-hmm. they had like sleeping rosters about who they had to sleep with, so that people didn't like pair off, mm-hmm. and that way it was just like everyone was shared with everyone else. So they were kind of like this community who shared everything. That's certainly a lot different than now, right? Yeah. yeah so let's, if you were saying, if you were trying to look now at that future, what would you what would you say? If you were trying to describe it to a group of 600 undergraduates that were coming into a university, how would you describe it, and what would you warn them? Or would you warn them? Would you say, that's a great future, let's go jump into it? Don't forget what your parents told you. Okay. <coughs> Don't forget what your parents told you. Try. Well, wouldn't you think about it in terms of a breakdown? Of, of the contemporary order of society, the order of society being one that enhance that emphasizes more of a monogamous type of thing. What happened in the seventies and the sixties when the sexual revolution took place? Well, the spread of AIDS came about. Herpes and AIDS just went right off the scale, with AIDS being, of course, much more deadly. Those things had perhaps been around a lot longer, but they never really got out. But once the sexual revolution came about, and they went and they went fast, it was like wildfire. So you one could say that there was a breakdown in the previous social order. Now, why would authors want to include sort of rampant sexuality in the future? What would it represent? What would the future look like if they were saying everybody was real? Well, they're trying to say it like it degenerated, I think. That um, that in the future people just have sex with anyone and it's sort of this breakdown of society. And 
and, I mean, in Brave New World, all this stuff he was trying to say, you know, there was this complete breakdown of society, and basically everything got to the point of what could each individual person produce for society. Mm-hmm. In the Forever War, Joe Haldeman is saying, you know, like, he comes back to Earth, and people are just, you know, freely having sex with anyone, and having homosexual sex to avoid, you know, having children, but they're still having sex for the sake of having sex, and it's just this complete breakdown. And, uh, because even in the army, they do have promiscuous sex at the beginning, but then they, like, pair off. Because by the time he comes back, he and Mary Gay are together, basically. And so, it's like, he's trying to say there's a breakdown of... Now, when you say the word breakdown, I think a lot of people might think, and probably maybe that's how you meant it, that it is a discombobulation to the point of no order. Oh, like breakdown no. to the point, or not breakdown in that sense. Breakdown in the sense of rescinding the rules. Rescinding the rules. They just let. I mean, the society just let. Well, it's it's a lot like during Vietnam, right at the beginning. I guess it was towards the end of Vietnam. There was this big movement to lower the drinking age, because the thought was if these people can go off to. You know, if these boys can go off and join the army at 16 and be killed... Then they can have a beer. Then they, they ought to be able to have a beer, right? Well, I think it's the same sort of thing here in that these people on planet Earth are so depressed. There's this war that's going to go on forever. You know, this war's been going on for 100 years or more. And uh, when, when they go back to Earth, the, you know, the war's been going on for 100 years or more. And these people, you know, uh, the world has gone to hell in a handbasket, if you'll pardon the expression. And so, you know, they need... You know, the, somebody figured out that if we take away the rules, people have more fun. Interesting. Now, put yourself in the perspective of the author. Why would they use the literary device of having sexual rules having broken down? What would that represent? What would that create in the reader's mind? I mean, I think, like... It always shows the masses as these weak, you know, because in every book we see these one or two people who just, like, stand out, and the best way to show how the masses just don't care in every book we see, it's like, whether it's a drug that gives them artificial pleasure or whether they're all having sex with everyone, it just shows that, right, the mass is just broken down. The mass is useless. They have no desire to do anything worthwhile. They don't care anymore. They just want to enjoy themselves. And if you think about it, in Darwin's radio, people got really upset when they couldn't have sex. You know, because, you know, all those women were like, you know, you can't have sex with me because, you know, the guys were carrying the disease. They might have a Herod's baby. Right. And so it was was all, you know, and there were riots in the streets over people not being able to have sex. Yeah. Well, I would like to posit with you the, the, the possibility that you might think about that the authors in some of the books that we've written that we've read not all of them just as sort of the opposite with Herod's with um, Darwin's radio but with some of the authors <coughs> like with Brave New World and with The Forever War the rampant sexuality might be a device that the authors use to represent to create in the reader's mind the fact that the future is different that the contemporary rules that we have now don't work anymore same thing holds true in the uplift war with the chimpanzees and they exactly. have their cards that's exactly right the the rules of the past don't work anymore and 
to create in the reader's mind that this is really a different future. Get your mind out of the current way of thinking. Get it out of the box. Think in a different way. Well, one of the most visceral ways to address that in humans is with regard to sexuality. If the sexuality is totally differently expressed than the way we normally express it, it's one of those, oh, wow, that's weird, dude. That's weird. That's completely what Ursula Keeligan did in her novel. Like, I mean, that was the yes, point of it, is that, that the people ex- were androgynous. Exactly. And then she didn't really address who they mated with when they were in Kemmer, but it was like the point was they were completely <coughs> androgynous. You need to like, think about these people in a different way. Excellent. So a lot of authors, including Ursula Le Guin and others, have used that device to sort of help us get our mind out to sort of conceive of what a different reality would look like, a different world would look like. So it's an interesting thing that you brought up that and you raised that. Let's do something. Let's go back. Now remember, this novel is an intellectual product of the Vietnam War experience. So we have wars going on now. Let's look at what's different. What's different about Joe Haldeman and the Vietnam War experience and how he wrote this novel and what we're going through right this moment with regard to our three wars. Let's go to page 7, chapter 2. Okay, beginning of chapter 2, page 7. And we're, by the way, this is the definitive preferred version of this. There were three versions of this war, of this Forever War novel. So this is the the author's definitive version. Okay, page 7, chapter 2. Rogers and I sat down on our end of the stringer and I took out my weed box. I had lots of joints, but we were ordered not to smoke them until after night chop. The only tobacco I had was a cigarro butt around three inches long. I lit it on the side of the box. It wasn't too bad after the first couple of puffs. Rogers took a puff just to be sociable, but made a face and gave it back. Where were you in school when you got drafted? she asked. Yeah, just got a degree in physics. Was going after a teacher's certificate. She nodded soberly. I was in biology. Figures. I ducked a handful of slush. How far? Six years, bachelor's and technical. She slid her boot along the ground, turning up a ridge of mud and slush, the consistency of freezing ice milk. What the blank did this have to happen? Why the blank did this have to happen? Well, what do you think about that? What's going on there? What's What do we know about these two characters? They kind of had a life before the war. And they had they a life before the war. Pulled them out of it to be fighting for something that they didn't even know existed. Well, why did they get pulled out of it? What happened to them? What? Because they were like the intelligent scientists. What's that? Go ahead. No, go ahead. You you started first. Now we'll go. No, I was just going to say they were considered to be like the intelligent ones in their field, and they wanted like different ones from each field to have on their like. Okay, but who pulled them out? Oh, the government. Yeah. Okay, the government. But why? What was going on? That what was what was the reason that they could get pulled out? The elite conscription act. Okay, the, the, go ahead, Adol. There's a draft, like the a government draft. made a, like elitist draft of like the smartest, the most physically capable members of society. They had a draft, an elite conscription. Exactly right, they had a draft. Well, what happened in Vietnam? They had a draft. They had a draft. The draft in Vietnam wasn't just elitist stuff, it was everybody and everybody who could find What's that? The draft in Vietnam wasn't the elitist stuff. 
But let's, it wasn't the, just the elite, it was everybody. Let's talk about the draft in Vietnam. That was my era. I, I almost got shit myself. So how, how did this work? You got a lottery number. A lottery number. And do you have any idea how well, it worked? Yeah, you pulled a lottery number, and it was based on your birthday or something? That's right. It was based on your birthday. And if you had, like, if you had a high lottery number, your chances of getting called were very low. Yep. And if you had a low lottery number, you were probably going to Nam. And well, I just remember, you know, my dad was telling me, you know, he had, like, 360-something. Yeah. And he was in, he was at Georgia Tech, and he had a deferment. And who was that? My dad. Your dad. Was in tech at the time, and he had a deferment that year, and he he said it was a really big deal that he had to go to the uh, registrar and, like, literally plead with the guy for hours to cancel his deferment, yeah. because where all these students were coming in, like, begging for deferments, because they had low numbers and didn't want to go to NOM, but his was, like, 360-something. His chance of going to NOM were so small that he wanted to drop his deferment, and it was just a big deal to convince people that you wanted to drop your deferment. Yeah. Because you know everyone was fighting for him. And that's interesting. That's by the way, your father's experience was identical to mine. Mine was three fifty. So uh, this is what happened. There was a barrel in Washington, and all the birthdays were put into little balls, just like a lottery barrel with balls in it. And then they spin the barrel and they pull them out. Now every district, all around the country, there are districts. Every district needed to produce a certain quota of people to go into the draft to go ship out and fight in the Indochina War. And so they kept on pulling people out based on their birthdays until they got to enough people from that district. And so the first birthday that would come out, they'd say, okay, everybody born on that day ships today. I mean, you're, you're drafted. And they pull out the next birthday, everyone born on that day and they keep going and after about 150, 155 generally speaking on average the districts were meeting their quota and they stopped pulling people the rule was that if you missed if you, if you didn't get called there was no double jeopardy if you didn't get called that one year that you were eligible that means you let your student deferment drop you were eligible and you didn't get called that year you were out of the pool and could not get called the next year. So that was the rule. So the reason your dad wanted to have his student deferment dropped immediately is if he escaped the draft that year, then he <coughs> escaped it permanently. If he kept his student deferment, then the whenever... Year, he could have had a 10 or a That's right, five, next year or a 10 or a 5. So whenever his student deferment did drop, he would be vulnerable. That's it. So what happened was college students were being drafted just as equally, as Adol said, just as equally with everybody else. College students being drafted as long with everybody else. Well, let's 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 look at. Um, what? Go ahead. Go ahead. What's that? Interesting. That why would they be taking like the best guys, people who can be able to create the newest like, technology stuff they can use? And then throwing them into a situation where, like, when they got to Sharon, they were told that at least half of you are going to die here. Like, I wouldn't, like, blink twice if that happened. Mm -hmm. so and by the way, that was... People who could. That was a lot of what was going on in Vietnam. Vietnam was a brutal war. You said Vietnam, like, they 
if you were a student, if you were like a good enough student, then you could get yourself a deferment. Here, like they're turning down the head actually. They're saying the best students are the ones who are going to go here in the in the book. In the yeah. Well, you're right. They're picking the absolute best, and they're not picking just people who are driving taxis or pumping gas. But the issue that Haldeman has raised is that they are drafting very intelligent people, people that are uh, on the intellectual top end of the society. But it, it just it seems so so completely ridiculous. I mean, well, I mean, in every previous war, or I guess by and large, I've always assumed that because you get student deferments for being, you know, an educational institution, you, I mean, they tended to draft people who were not mm-hmm. in higher learning. So, why would you draft those people who are the smartest? Because I would argue that most of those people would be the least equipped to go into combat. Well, that's a really interesting point. Let's read a little bit more about this. Let's I mean, not to go with stereotypes about effeminate mm-hmm. academians or anything, but, I mean... Well, there's, there's other issues. Let's, let's go to page 9 and continue this basic idea. This is near the end of that same chapter, the end of chapter 2. The last two paragraphs of page 9. Then some bright lad in the General Assembly decided he, he they're describing how the war got started. Then some bright lad in the General Assembly decided that we ought to field an army of foot soldiers to guard the portal planets of the near collapse of the collapsars. This led to the Elite Conscription Act of 1996 and the most elitely conscripted army in the history of warfare. So here we were, 50 men and 50 women with IQs over 150 and bodies of unusual health and strength, slogging elitely through the mud and slush of central Missouri. This was during training, of course. Reflecting on the usefulness of our skill in building bridges on worlds where the only fluid is an occasional standing pool of liquid helium. Now let's think about this. These are college kids. What was it like back in the Vietnam War days? You see a little bit of protest here. But what was it like back in the Vietnam War days? There was a lot of protesting. A lot of protests. College kids everywhere were protesting. You know, one of the things you want to ask about is... If they're going to be engaged in a big war now, and as Donald Rumsfeld wants to have a small, fast army, small, 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 well, what do you get with a small army? You don't get a lot of troops. And if you don't get a lot of troops with a a small, powerful army, then you don't have to get near the issue of the draft. So when you're emphasizing fast, technologically superior, small armies... What you're really talking about is don't get a draft. Because with a draft, you need people, you need bodies, you need lots of them, and you get them from all over. Because you can't have a draft just of poor kids, uneducated kids. If you're going to have a draft, you've got to get everybody. It just wouldn't politically sell any other way. So you're going to get college kids. What happens when you get college kids? You've seen some protests about the war going on now. Who's conducting those protests right now? When you think about it. Mainly college kids. Go ahead, Otto. Mainly college kids. 
people at college and who interested in politics. Well, when you when you go, go ahead, like college people like around the around our age, it's mainly people that are just saying what the hell. Well, what it. kind of? But what kind of protests are you seeing? Well, you're not seeing protests out in the street, by the way. Now, that's a good point. What you're seeing are protests in terms of the media. You're seeing people... Very good point. I mean, the, the thing is that, I mean, like, during Vietnam, a lot of people who were protesting were those who were predominantly being drafted, which mm-hmm. were the young people in college. I mean, because the way I understood it, the Army wanted, you know, younger people... And so I, I thought, and I thought a lot of people got drafted out of college disproportionate to the number of people in the population that were of draft age. A lot of people got drafted. Uh, there was a threat to college kids everywhere. Now, if I might put a little historical note here. Uh, by the way, you're absolutely correct. There are, um, there are not uh, any protests really going on. The only protests you're getting are the media protests, meaning people are making speeches. What kind of protests did we have during the Vietnam War days? Well, yeah. I remember... Uh, go ahead. Well, you had popular protests. You had students... I mean, uh, everyone remembers, like, you know, Kent State and all those, you know, massive protests during Vietnam of the college students. They, like, burned... Didn't they burn their, like... Burn their draft, draft cards? Draft well, burning, talk about burning. <clears throat> now, Emory is a very elite university. Pretty stayed back... If you ask me, I mean, he's pretty calm and everything like that. Can you believe that during those times they burned the ROTC building to the ground on Emory's campus? That's why we don't have ROTC. That's why you don't have ROTC on Emory's campus. <laughs> they burned it to the ground. Wow. Now, at Rutgers, can, training corps. At Rutgers yeah, where I was, they occupied the ROTC building. I was class president at the time, and uh, they captured the ROTC building, the students, and they were, I mean, they thousands of people out in the streets, and they captured the ROTC building. And then I walked into the ROTC building just to see what was going on, and then sure enough, there were a bunch of people just camping out in the ROTC building. They didn't seem to be destroying anything. They were just sitting around talking, talking, and talking. Now, I was uh, um, taking a lot of political science courses back in those days, and those days you had 500, 600 students at the drop of a hat in any political science course just about all the introductory courses had you know standing room only absolutely everybody was concerned about every little aspect of political science including what Plato said what Aristotle said what Hobbes said everybody was trying to come up with the meaning of life because they were being confronted with the idea that they were going to be shipped out and go kill somebody it was a very very wrenching time for everyone. And when the Vietnam War ended and President Nixon resigned because of the Watergate scandal, a professor of mine, I was then a graduate student in political science at uh, San Francisco State University where I was getting a master's degree, he said to me, boy, this is a real sad day. And I said, what are you talking about? We won. President Nixon had to resign. The Vietnam War is over. Watergate collapsed everything. And he said, no, it's a real sad day. And, and, and I said, well, how could you mean that? And he said, oh, you're just a young kid. You don't understand anything. You see, when we had the Vietnam War, when we had President Nixon with all that corruption stuff going on, and we had all of you students threatened with literally going out and becoming murderers out in Vietnam and coming back mentally disabled, perhaps physically disabled, the, the real threats to your lives, 
you all became interested in political science and you all wanted to know about the real meaning of what we were teaching. And now what's happened is you all revert back to being stenographers, <laughs> which are people, people who are quiet, sitting in the room and just taking notes. And I said, no, you can't. No, no, you won't happen. We have learned. We have learned. We've grown. We've matured. We now know the meaning of life. And he looked at me and he said, you'll see. <laughs> you'll all be pre-law, pre-med, pre-business majors in a very short amount of time. Well, he was right, of course. But the, the, the point is that back when those tumultuous days occurred and all those demonstrations were occurring, Around the same time that the ROTC building was captured at Rutgers and the ROTC building here at Emory was burned down to the ground, someone made an announcement that there was going to be a massive demonstration at down, marching down Fifth Avenue uh, protesting the war. I didn't know what was going on, but everybody seemed to be going, so I said, let me go. So I went down, and there were 500,000 students on Fifth Avenue marching down and in unison at the top of their lungs all screaming out oh oh ho chi men ho 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 chi men running down and you know i didn't know what ho chi men was at the time i thought it was a hiking trail up at the rocky mountains i didn't know what was going on but i knew they were screeching it and i knew they were very much protesting it they and i suspect a lot of people didn't know much more about the vietnam war than i did and i was a college educated or being educated kid learning about everything i knew that th something was up and that i was under risk in some way and that people were protesting and i was trying to fathom what was actually going on i didn't know enough about the uh, uh the viet minh or the uh, the, the, the independence movement it was the Vietnam War was fundamentally not a civil war it was an independence movement they were trying to get their country back not just from us but from the Japanese and then the French and then the Americans they were just fighting a, the best way to fight that war should have been just to drop Sears and Roebuck catalogs all over the place and just let them you know figure out how to be capitalists which they're slowly learning how to do now but anyway the point is that you had 500,000 students screaming at the top of their lungs. And believe me, the authorities took note. You had John Lennon becoming a focus <coughs> of, of, uh, 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 of John Mitchell, of the Attorney General, of the elite, of Nixon himself. President Nixon himself saying, we've got to get John Lennon out of the country. He's causing, he's too much of a threat to national security. He was just singing songs. Do you get the idea? He was singing songs and addressing the college community. You had hundreds of thousands of people marching in Washington, D.C. We had a situation in which if people thought they were going to be drafted by the hundreds, hundreds and hundreds they were trying to get out of the country. Going to some of my some of my friends are professors of sociology or political science or whatever in Canada. They were Americans. They walked across the border to escape this land so that they could land up in Canada, and they ended up going to school there and becoming professors just like me. But now they're Canadian, and I, on some conferences I meet them and say, "How you doing?" But how did they get there? It was the Vietnam War. People were thinking. People were moving. People were doing things. Well, in this forever war, which is constructed out of the Vietnam experience, you have intelligent people. Now, one of the things I'd like you to question is the following. Think about this. They still make you do it. What's that? 
They still make you do it. Oh, yeah, you still have to register. Oh, this is your card. Yeah, that's my that's draft card. card. Just in case. Yeah, you make you sign this little thing. and Just in case. It's got your selective service number on it, when you were born, and yeah. everything about you. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, given that experience, and believe me, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and to some extent George Bush, who managed to escape the draft by... Uh, getting into the National Guard with some political connections in Texas. The National Guard back in those days didn't fight the wars. Back in those days, it was used for domestic purposes. So if you got into the National Guard, you're safe. You're not going to go to Nam. If you go into the National Guard now, well, you can see what happens when you have too few soldiers. The National Guard gets put into troop, into action. Well, one of the things that you should ask yourself is, why are there no real mass protests, mass protests, going on now? The war is going badly, just like the Vietnam War went badly. Now, it may be that the mass protests are coming, but one of the things that we don't have is, one of the ingredients that we don't have is what? A draft. We don't have a draft, and that means we don't have educated kids being threatened. Now, believe you, a lot of those Vietnam vets were very courageous. But that war, like all wars, was brutal. But that was perhaps a more brutal war than most. Because when my father came back from World War II, he was received as a hero. When the vets came back from, World, from Vietnam, they didn't come back to ticker tape parades. They didn't come back as heroes. They came back and often were thrown back into the same communities they left, sometimes college communities. They went back to school. And people were saying, who did you kill? What happened to you? That war was lost. It was a dirty war. We shouldn't have been fighting it. Fighting it. Corporate interests were involved. They didn't have the ticker tape raised. They weren't brought back as heroes. And what you had in the Vietnam War was a lot of vets came back emotionally deeply scarred, not just because of what they went through in Vietnam, but what they didn't go through when they got back here. They didn't go, up, go, go through some type of receiving process that rewarded them for what they did. They had psychological trauma. A huge number of vets had difficult times. I remember my own, my own personal experience. I had some friends who were Vietnam vets. And, you know, when you met them at parties, as soon as you found out that somebody was a Vietnam vet, a, a number of my friends and I agreed that, you know, you just didn't want to talk with them very long. And the reason was it only took about 20 minutes over a couple beers before they started to talk about how they picked up somebody's head and put it in a body bag and somebody's penis and testicles they threw into the body bag, didn't know who that belonged to, picked up arms and threw them into, and how the guns kept, bullets kept shooting over their head and somebody would dry and then they'd, how they'd see a head blown up right in front of their faces. And they had to put the scalp and they had to try to retrieve the scalp and the dog tags. And then they'd start crying, and then you were there till three or four in the morning with the Vietnam vet crying and relating all those stories because there was so much trauma that they had to get through. And we were college kids able to process that information, and the one thing we did process was, we don't want to experience that. That's the one thing. Now, if you don't have a college community, what happens in a college community? You're all here. You're all here in one time, in one spot and you meet and you're in dormitories and you can talk you're in classes what if you're 
drafting somebody who's pumping gas in a gas station in some rural spot in South Carolina. Who does he have to talk with? Back in those days, it was drafting only men. He doesn't have any community to draft, to, to talk with. No central location to sort it all out. So their environment is different as well as their educational level is different. So their individual abilities to process the information is less. It's not that they don't have, it's not that uneducated people don't have good brain power, but it's like a muscle. If the brain is not used, it's not capable of doing as much as if it is used. Otherwise, there would be no reason to go to college in the first place. You get something from a college education. But just go ahead, Jason first, then I'll go. Well, just even try to think about instituting a draft today would be would be mind-boggling just to start with the fact that you couldn't exclude women from the draft anymore. That's so the first point. thing that's going to happen is that you're going to have a draft of double the... I mean, you're going to have double the number of people involved in the draft. Um, then you're going to have to... Because the Army right now, though it does have women in it, is predominantly male. Mm-hmm. And if you do a draft, you're going to have to have equal numbers of men and women or it's going to look sexist. So then the Army's going to have to completely redo everything they do in order to deal with the women and the men who are going to be living in close quarters. There will be that issue. And then you're just going to have... I mean, I just... I mean, it's it's not really amusing, but to think of a lot of the girls at Emory getting drafted is is rather priceless. I mean, some of those women wouldn't know what to do without their you know Prada whatever. So I mean, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, in all seriousness, I don't know. I mean, it's, it'd be very difficult to draft women into the army. I mean, I mean it, some guys at Emory. I, I mean, there's some guys at Emory too. But I mean, it's just. I mean, you know, like I, the whole. The whole structure of the army would have to change. I mean, the whole army mentality would have to change. Well, it certainly would have to adapt. However, I I, 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 I probably would have a more optimistic view than you on how the women would adapt. I think they would adapt okay, but I, I see your point, and that's the way a lot of people would sort of think of it, perhaps. Although you were going to mention something. I was going to say that, like you said that college, <coughs> without a college education, you're unable to like, process stuff as well with your brain, but that's not strictly true. Like, Einstein didn't really have a college education. And he was, like, one of the greatest thinkers ever. Einstein had a had a full a full education. And I thought Einstein didn't, like, he failed. He, his college education wasn't all that, like, level. No, that's sort of an, that's apocryphal. No, Einstein had a. In fact, the the the, the concept that Einstein wasn't so great in math that is also apocryphal. And he was pretty good so in math, but like everything that I've read about him up to date says that like overall his education, like he wasn't that satisfied with his education. He didn't enjoy. He didn't do so well overall. He had graduate education. Though. He became a professor at Princeton, uh, and he wasn't he wasn't without his degrees. Okay. So okay, he did. So no, I'm he. So no, he did have. But the one thing I want to... Let's bring it back to Cheney and Rumsfeld. Um, and you can bring in George Bush. But let's bring it back to Cheney and Rumsfeld to begin with. They were products of the Vietnam War in their, in their way. They, they clearly don't want to draft and are willing to do anything to fight this war with limited resources to avoid the draft. Well, do the powerful want smart and educated people, kids, to fight? 
Now let's, they're trying to avoid the draft, and so clearly they're trying to avoid getting you kids into the draft, into the military. Why would they not want you? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously they can just remember the non-protest. I mean, I mean, the, the epicenter of the non-protest were colleges. I mean, okay. So on the level of, if you don't want mass protests, well, I mean, if you don't want mass protests, but you're going to start, there's going to be a much, much greater outcry against the war if you start drafting people, because you're going to have every college in the country is going to have students pulled out of their university uh, to go fight in Iraq. And immediately what you're going to get are, you know, protests from students in every college. You're going to get protests from the media. You're going to get protests from parents who don't want their kids shipped off to Iraq. You're going to get protests... I mean, you're going to start an uprising if you do it, if you have a draft. Not merely are you going to start college riots. I mean, everyone is going to rebel against the draft because the approval rating of this war is so low that, I, I mean, no one wants to go there. And you'd have trouble convincing the American populace that it was a necessity at this point because the initial attack is over. Now we're basically in there for peacekeeping operations and, like, you know, trying to organize a new government and trying to get the state back on its feet. We're not, we're not, in, we're not in the mass offensive we were in in Nam. We're not... Whether this is true or not, I don't think most people believe that we're actually in a war. I think they believe that right now we're setting up a new government, that we're trying to get the country on its feet again. And I think you'd have a very hard time convincing people that you need a draft for that. Exactly. And there's more kids in college now anyways, too. So. I think it's also hard trying to convince the army itself to fight, because if you have all those kids in there, they're going to go against like the authority and like not want to be there in the first place. And then you don't really have an army in itself, because... There's no one that wants to actually go and fight, and they won't listen to that, the rules that they establish, and it would just be like rebellion, basically. Oh, yeah. We'd argue like crazy. Yeah. You'd argue like crazy? We'd protest. <laughs> okay, so there's, two th- there's a couple things that are happening here. You're talking first about the level of protests, that there would be hundreds of thousands of people marching down Fifth Avenue, screeching, be, be, be Baghdad, or something like that. <laughs> they, they, or leave, leave, leave Baghdad, or something like that. They would, they would be screeching. But you'd have protests in Washington, millions of people surrounding the White House and the Capitol. And you'd have okay, so on that level, and also you'd have the college campuses suddenly organizing. Where now you're sort of, it's a distant, it's a distant idea for you now. It's an intellectual debate now. Okay, but on the other hand, let's think not in terms of just protests. But that's a good point. I wanted to raise that, and that you raised it well. What would happen on the level of the soldiers, though? What happens, do the powerful and elite want you people who are thinkers, who are using your brain, you're reading books well, no, to fight? Because you're going to, I mean, A, people who are intelligent and who, well, well, even on a more fundamental level than just in general in the college, on the college level, people who are going to be drafted into the army. I mean, do you really want your soldiers smarter than their leaders? I mean, just on a, on a fundamental level, you're going to be drafting people in college, and predominantly, the uh, the people who would be leading you in the military are not college graduates. A lot of them, like the officers go through well, the training. Get a, a lot of the officers, a lot of the officers do, but the person you're going to be directly under, the person who's going to be running your little unit, is probably not is going to be a non-commissioned officer. And probably what would not happen? Be a college That's graduate. an excellent point. <laughs> so, what would happen if you, as a college as a college student, were in the war in the <coughs> army? And you started to <coughs> be told to do things that weren't right. At the point, there comes a level of discipline that, like, in the army, if you're insubordinate, 
You might start. Good point, Otto. So you might start questioning, and you might start risking insubordination. But if you question, you have to balance questioning with like the rules. Because mm-hmm. if you step out of line even slightly, well, the first person who's going to step out of line, they're going to grab, they're going to make a big example of him, so the rest of the people in there don't like are scared of stepping out of line again. And you said that the or you might make a martyr. I mean, I like if you know that you can be killed. I don't think most people would understand that. But you said the NCOs aren't all that smart. But right. I know a couple of the NCOs, and like the ones I know, they're some of the they're really actually like I'm, smart people. I'm not saying I'm not saying they're dumb. I'm just saying that you're pitting people. You're you're trying to lead by you're, you're trying to have someone as a leader who is experienced, but is to but who is not a college graduate. And even not based on intelligence, based on perception, the people who are college graduates who are ha- or who are college students who are having to take orders from him, they're going to chafe under that because they're going to think, I'm in college. You know, I got into college. I'm smart. I'm smarter than this man. I'm more than this man let's, can ever be. Let's, of course, we have to assume, and, and correctly, that the raw brain power of the, of the officers and the NCOs and non-commissioned officers is going to be equivalent yeah. to the college thinkers, the college students. But... What do the college students have in, their, in terms of their intellectual background that the officers, sergeants, and so on like that who are not college grads not have? What do you learn when you come to college? When you come to college, you learn to be an individual thinker, to be an independent thinker, to think outside the box. And in terms of what Socrates once said, what do you do when you do that? What kind of thing do you do? You, t- you take a look at things from a different perspective. You question authority. You, you try question. to figure out... Well, and, well, and the question. thing is that these... That these Troops that you're going to put in are going to be questioning. They're going to be asking why. They're going to want to know. And part of the army mentality is: do first, don't ask questions don't at all. Ask questions later. And well, let me help that no one wants to be there in the first place. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, the soldiers now wanted to be in the army. They care passionately about the issue. Well, now you're actually raising. I'm saying you're actually raising another issue, which is valid, and very important. Which is the army as a volunteer army is a means of upward mobility to people who don't have education and they don't have job prospects so to them it's a good thing to get into the army you maybe can do something with your life afterwards but in a college environment you're taking people who already have those prospects and taking them away from those prospects and you're going to anger a lot of people in the army if you do a draft like that because you're going to have people who are like people who are saying you know this is my method of advancement this is how I'm going to move up in life and then you got all these college students who are you're raising good points I'd like to change I'd like to change the perspective slightly uh, by focusing on the exact same point, except from the perspective of today's New York Times, the leading editorial. Let's read the leading editorial in today's New York Times and relate it to what we're talking about. This is the editorial for Thursday, March 23, 2006, New York Times. It's called The Joy of Being Blameless. The contrast could not have been more stark, nor the message more clear. On the day that a court-martial imposed justice on a 24-year-old army sergeant for tormenting detainees at Abu Ghraib with his dog, President Bush said once again that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, whose benighted policies and managerial incompetence led to the prisoner abuse scandal, was doing a fine job and should stay at his post. We've seen this sorry pattern for nearly two years now, since the Abu Ghraib horrors first shocked the world. President Bush has clung to the fiction that the abuse of prisoners was just the work of a few rotten apples. 
despite report after report after report demonstrating that it was organized and systematic and flowed from policies written by top officials in this administration. Just this week, Eric Schmidt and Carolyn Marshall provided a blood-curdling account in the Times of how a special operations unit converted an Iraqi military base into a torture <coughs> chamber, into a torture chamber, even using prisoners as paintball targets and their frenzy to counter a widely predicted insurgency for which Mr. Rumsfeld had refused to prepare. In early 2004, an 18-year-old man suspected of selling cars to members of a terrorist network was arrested and beaten repeatedly. Another man said he had been forced to strip, punched in the spine until he fainted, put in front of an air conditioner while cold water was poured on him, and kicked in the stomach until he vomited. His crime? His father had worked for Saddam Hussein. These accounts are tragically familiar. The names and dates change, but the basic pattern is the same, including the fact that this bestiality produced little or no useful intelligence. The Bush administration decided to go outside the law to deal with prisoners, and soldiers carried out that policy. Those who committed these atrocities deserve punishment they are getting, but virtually all high-ranking soldiers have escaped unscathed, and not a single policymaker has been called to account. Colonel Thomas Pappas, the former intelligence chief at Abu Ghraib, testified at the dog handler's trial that the use of dogs had grown out of conversations he had had with military jailers from Guantanamo Bay, led by Major General Geoffrey Miller, who had been sent to Iraq to instruct soldiers there in the interrogation techniques refined at Gitmo under Mr. Rumsfeld's torture-is-legal policy. Colonel Papa said General Miller had explained how to use the Arab fear of dogs to set up interrogations. What of General Miller? He invoked his right against self-incrimination to avoid testifying, and Time magazine reported this week that he was exonerated by an army whitewash. Apparently, he was not responsible for the actions of soldiers operating under rules he put in place. About the only high-ranking officer whose career has suffered over Abu Ghraib is Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez, who was the commander in Iraq at the time. General Sanchez should certainly take responsibility, but he was also a victim of administration blunders. General Sanchez was vaulted inappropriately from head of the 1st Armored Division to overall commander because Mr. Bush declared, Mission accomplished. The war is over. He was then denied the staff, soldiers, and equipment he needed to deal with the insurgency that quickly broke out and produced thousands of prisoners. Mr. Bush has refused to hold himself or any of his top political appointees accountable for those catastrophic errors. Indeed, indeed, he has promoted many of them. And this is not an isolated problem. It's just one example among many of how this president's men run no risk of being blamed for anything that happens. Not, no, ma- not, no matter how egregious. Now let's try to figure this out in the context of the forever war, John Haldeman. What is he talking about with regard to this? What happens when you have... Why is this happening? Why is the Abu Ghraib... What's different? But what do we get from John Haldeman's novel and what we've just been talking about with regard to the Vietnam War that's different from what we just read about? What you were just first talking about before I read that editorial. Questioning. Questioning? Like people in that did question, like in the article, like the people are talking about the Lloyd's Security Interrogations did question the orders at all. 
they were told that okay you do this 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 to get information and they went out and did that so Adil you're correct there was a lack of questioning the people were just told torture is legal go ahead do it and they did it except on the flip side right you, these people like the troops there they've been they're under constant threat of like the little lady pushing her baby across the walk like straight in front of them suddenly turning around pulling out a machine gun and spraying them like nobody can stay there are risks <coughs> there are risks of war there are no questions not, about it no like it's, when they signed up for the army they like they accept the risk that they'd be killed by an enemy soldier they'd be killed by somebody who they know is going to kill them but in the environment where everybody is your possible enemy but you can't do a thing about it because they're civilians I know that's a very it's a very shallow view of warfare. I remember my father, who fought in Guam, telling me point blank that sometimes <coughs> soldiers, perhaps under his command, perhaps himself, he didn't say it, had shot people who, you know, women carrying children because they, they feared that they had bombs. They, they were walking up towards them and they would sometimes sometimes they would simply blow up and you didn't know if they were going to blow up or not so you shot them sometimes without waiting in the Vietnam War this did happen this did happen uh, that people people blew themselves up they were suicide bombers and, and, and that's kind of like thing my argument is that like the soldiers grip on their moralities because it's a natural human instinct like we saw in this game to survive like you do whatever you need to you survive, you deal with the aftermath of the I intense scrutiny wasn't there though I understand what you're saying I understand you're saying that that happened in World War II and it happened in Nam and I've heard the stories but and it's happening now in Iraq and it's happening now in Iraq the problem is that World War II and Nam there was not the scrutiny that there is with Iraq now they're like the every reverse is true no, I'm saying that in Iraq, that there's such an issue with the Abu Ghraib prisoner scandals, etc., that if a soldier were to shoot a civilian based on the fact that they thought they might have a bomb, the hue and cry would be miraculously no, amazing. I would challenge this. You see, the editorial that we're talking about now is systematic unthinking within the military ranks. Not just that, though. Now, look what happened in some... There, there were abuses in Vietnam, the Mai Lai Massacre. There were abuses in Vietnam. We had... Now Senator Kerry, former presidential candidate, came back after Vietnam as a vet, and he caused all sorts of trouble that he still lives with to this day, <coughs> denouncing what was going on in the Vietnam War. College grads coming back. What we have is we have a different type of army now. We have a volunteer army that's predominantly made of kids who did not go to college and who were not taught critical skills of questioning. And what we had back in the Vietnam War days was a certain percentage, a hefty percentage, of those same soldiers, the U.S. Army soldiers, who came out of college. But no, to me it sounds like... Now, abuses happen, but at the same time, you have... Go ahead. To me, it kind of sounds like the argument you're making is that the college education makes us elitist, that we're able to think and they're not. And I, like, that I can't agree with. Well, I think it's like, like we said, some people get in the army because they want to advance themselves. If they don't listen to their commanding officers, where are they going to, they have no other place, they have no backup. A college student is going to argue, it's like, why should I do this? Why should I do that? 
But I mean, like, they're in that fear of, like, progressing, I mean. And we've seen in everything, not even just the Army, any corporation, people will... I mean, they talk about Challenger Explosion. We read that article about that. And, and people will do anything to progress themselves. They don't want to ask questions because, I mean, they're going to... I mean, how many people can actually stand up? I mean, that's one thing about being a college student. And a lot of college students wouldn't do it either. But, I mean, that's one advantage we do have is because we think that, you know what? We, we have the right to question. We have a future. We don't want to jeopardize that. So we will question. We won't just do something blindly. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what a lot of... These soldiers don't have. They don't have any. They don't have any background. They don't have any future prospects. They need to do what they need to do, and yeah. I mean, that's a problem it's too. Very, you know, we're running out of time. Let me just ask a couple real short questions. Um, from the perspective of a smaller army that Donald Rumsfeld et al. want, can you afford college kids that question? Meaning in a larger army where you have zillions of troops out there, a certain percentage of them questioning whether they're doing something correct can be tolerated. But if you have a, a small, fast, technically proficient army, can you have a lot of thinkers out there, that certain percentage that question whether this is correct? Meaning, do the educated soldiers question too much? Do the elite and powerful really want college kids out there on the battlefield? Also, the connection of the internet and cell phones. College kids on the battlefield would be writing all sorts of blogs, all sorts of information that was well phrased would be coming back. All sorts of troubles could be caused. Is that why the United States tries to avoid the draft of college kids? They're causing too much trouble. They think too much. And you put them in risk, they will go into hyperdrive of thinking more and more and act on that. Now, the one question I'd really like to ask you, though, is, so we have a volunteer army now, a volunteer army that is relatively poor economically and poor intellectually. We don't have a lot of college-educated kids, proportionally speaking, on on the battlefields. Is it morally correct to send the poor and the uneducated to fight a war that is fundamentally defending the resources of the rich. Meaning, it is very clear from the very beginning, we're not talking about weapons of mass destruction, and there was no connection at the time between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda and the 911. That's an an unchallenged idea. It's unambiguous at this point. We went into Iraq because of the oil. We need that oil, and we still need that oil. And you can't disconnect the policies of the... Cheney energy policy with the drive for Iraq. Cheney came out saying alternate energy may be fine and good in the far future but we need conventional sources right now and we need oil. We went into Iraq not because Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. There are millions, there are, there are lots of very bad leaders out there. We don't invade all of their countries. Saddam Hussein, however, he had the oil. So we had to go in. So the question is, is it morally correct for the poor and the uneducated to specifically be targeted to go in and fight for the resources of the rich. And they're specifically not targeting you to go in and fight those wars because you would cause them trouble. The poor and the uneducated won't cause them trouble. 
because they won't really be able to think their way out of it. And with a smaller force, there's not that many of them. These are not certainties. These are questions I'm leaving you with. And again, I'm being the devil's advocate with all of these things. Forcing the issues to think. Not that I fundamentally believe one way or the other, but I'm trying with my, you know, with my darndest effort to just raise some issues that are causing us to have to think. I don't have a draft to inspire you to think. But we have science fiction. And from there we can get these ideas. Now we're going to finish this, okay, over the weekend. Joe Haldeman's The Forever War. And we will then talk about it and uh, finish it up on Tuesday. I will hand your papers back on Tuesday. Will the Avengers game due Tuesday or not? No, no, it'll be due on... Oh, actually, yeah. Over the weekend is when you like to do it. So basically, yes. Ender's game will be due on Tuesday. Actually, I'd like to hand... We got out of sync. We got out of sync a bit. Um, I'd actually like to hand these back before you do them. To do Thursday. Yeah, I'd like them to be due on Thursday, so I'd like to give these back to you on Tuesday. So we can actually get some feedback before. So you get some feedback. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah, so how about on Tuesday? I mean, they're only two and a half pages long, so. Oh, I know. I, I have a midterm on Thursday, so I'm trying Well, to why don't you work on it over the weekend, and then maybe all you need to do is just some changes. Okay. Uh, okay. That's a good idea. It'll be due on oh. Thursday, the Andrews Game 1. Great, see you then.